right, we're back, folks. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Drew Marshall Show. We're on the uh, phone with uh, Mick, uh, Mick Jagger's daughter. I bet she, she's never heard that before. Never, right? ever. No, I, I'm sure she's never heard that song played for her either. Ever. No, who, what what God station would come in with that song? Um, not this one. No, not, just not the station, the, the just the show. show yeah. yeah. Tim, thank you for being in my world. Thank you for being part of mine, too. <laughs> Insert name can here. I ju- can I just say that I'm <laughs> very bothered by the fact that our intern, Jay... Yeah, Jay, we're throwing you yeah. under the bus right now. Gave the entire bag of butter tarts to the band. Oh. So three people got six butter tarts. What, what? kind of math is that, Jay? Oh. Moron. Anyway, Steph Jagger's on the uh, line with us right now, and she's the author of Unbound. She's now a little unbound, trying to figure out what she's getting into here. Um, they can go in the lunchroom, eh? You did that? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, finding Myself on Top of the World. Unbound, Finding Myself on Top of the World. Steph, you... Um, for, oh, sorry, i got to give the website here. StephJagger.com. Your entire life, how many Jagger comments have you had to grow up with? <laughs> You know, I've had to grow up with a fair number of them, but most people mispronounce it. They think it's Jaeger, like Jaegermeister. Or Jaeger Bomb. Uh, yeah, or Jaeger Bomb. Well, I remember one time I said to someone, it's Jaeger like Mick, and they thought that was my whole last name, like Jaeger like Mick. Jaeger like Mick. And, Hello, yeah. I'm Steph Jaeger like Mick. I don't know who Mick Jaeger is, but <laughs> I guess there's like a young generation that doesn't. Kids these days, eh? Kids. Get off my life. Um, you're a San Diego-ish person? Where are you? I'm a San Diego-ish person. Yeah, I just landed in San Diego today after about a month on the road, but my husband and I split time between British Columbia and San Diego. Right. I thought there because I saw an endorsement from a former guest of ours, mm-hmm. um, a Vancouver girl, Biff Naked. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Vancouver and, um, you know, lived there all my life until probably about six years ago when I went on this, um, you know, Blizzard of Oz kind of journey. And Blizzard then, of Oz, really? Nice. <laughs> Get us some Ozzy Osbourne. Um, th- that made no sense, Tim. That he's, joke. Got, he's got a song called, like, Blizzard of Oz. Is there something he does like, not. There's something connected. I think he does, yeah. Ah! Uh, <laughs> I think sorry. he does. Tim and I have known each other since we were 14, so he's an idiot. Um ah. Steph, um, were you ever scared? Did you ever get almost in trouble? Did you ever almost die? Can, let's spice this story up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Sh- sh- like on the ski trip or yeah. just in life in general? No, no. On the ski trip. <laughs> was I ever scared? Did I almost die? I mean, sh- you know, there was a time in Japan <clears throat> in the backcountry where I lost one of my skis in really deep powder. Um, and I started to dig to look for it. And I just froze partway through my, my mad shoveling. And looked around me, and I was like, "If I continue doing this, I'm going to trigger an avalanche." Like it was—that was one of the scariest situations that I was in. And then had to make a choice of of skiing down uh, on one ski in in pretty gnarly terrain. Um, you know, I don't know if the viewers or listeners out there know how many vertical feet, but it was you know going from the top of the mountain, top of Whistler Mountain, say to to the bottom on on one ski, Whoa. you know, kind of skipping it back and forth and. In really gnarly terrain, and and no patrol, nobody out there to rescue you if you know if if things went, yeah. you know, worse than that. So that that was a that was a pretty scary moment. Something I can look back at and like really have a good chuckle at now. Sure, um, but it was pretty terrifying in the in the moment. I I just can't get over the fact that you just used the word gnarly. You know, the seventies called. They want their word back. This is great. <laughs> Love yeah, gnarly, gnar. That's a, it's a it's a skiing term. Sure. Too, too funny. So, um, 
how eat, pray, love is this really? I mean, you're an attractive woman, so you got the Julia thing going. I don't, sure. I don't know if you have a vein in your forehead when you laugh or cry, but yeah, yeah. I don't when I do my horse laugh. I don't get the vein. <laughs> your I, horse um, laugh. I, I think it's pretty eat, pray, lovish, but I think there's um, definitely a, a more physically grueling element to not not. I guess my, my some of her time and that she spent in the ashram would have been considered grueling to some degree, but. Um, you know, the physical feat in and of itself, um, you know, I skied 4.16 million vertical feet. That's the equivalent of, of going from the top of Everest to sea level about 145 times. So, um, it, you know, the, the physicality of it was no messing around. And I think that's a huge difference between between um, Unbound and, and Eat, Pray, Love for sure. Sure, yeah, and sitting around and eating couscous. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of sitting around and eating. It was a little more, um, you know, buffalo burgers and nachos and beer. But, yes. Um, yeah, but um, but there was uh, a real difference in the kind of uh, physical endurance for sure. What was? Here's a question that people asked me before I headed out on the Camino. So uh, I just to bring your listeners or your fans in on this conversation because my people are sick of hearing of it. I walked a thousand kilometers uh, on the Camino de Santiago. I was in a three month vow of silence, and somebody, inevitably, someone says to me, "Did you find what you're looking for?" And that question started bugging me. Can you understand why that would bug me <laughs> at all? Or what were you looking for, Steph? I guess um, I guess it depends if you if you were looking for something or not. I mean, I think there's so many different reasons to do these kinds of quests and journeys. And some people are looking for something. Some people aren't. Some people need a break. Um, uh, some people are trying to heal. Like, there's so many different motivations for doing these things. Um, for me, I never had that exact question. Um, but I, I, I often tell people that I like went on a treasure hunt without even knowing what the treasure was, and I did in fact Ooh. find something. Oh, I'm so uh, using that. Hold on, hold on. I, <laughs> I am so teefing that. Do you want me yeah. to write it down for you, Tim? Say, say it again. Say it so I can remember. Tim's going to write it down. And I went on a treasure hunt without even knowing what the treasure was. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like Oak Island. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, you, you find, you know, a, a, a di different parts of yourself, you've discovered different parts of the world, you, I mean, so many different things that come out of a journey like this, um, and a deeper understanding of, you know, certainly who who I am, and specifically who, who I am as a woman in the world, that that was uh, that was it, but I've never been asked that exact question, like, you know, did you find what you were looking for in that way? Tell me, tell me about the sign on the ski lift. When did that really become your mantra? I mean, it... I mean, yeah, it, it happened like, you know, I was up in Whistler skiing. It was the middle of the week. I was skiing with some really good buddies that I used to work with. And it was just one of those, you know, kind of like perfect, perfect days up there. It was really cold, great snow, crystal clear blue skies. And and we skied hard all day. And partway up to one of our last chairlifts in the afternoon, I just blurted it out, like, you know, wouldn't it be great if I, I think I'm going to ski around the world. Like, everyone says Whistler is the best. Like, maybe I should find out. And and there was silence on the chairlift. And then the silence kind of slowly turned into um, a lot of laughter. And, and then, you know, my buddy's kind of shooting the idea down. Like, Jagger, you don't have the money. You're not a good enough skier. What about your career? You know, all of these things. Mm. Like, I was like, right, 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 right. Yeah, that that's a really stupid idea. And then we got to the top of the chairlift, and of course, I'd been on chairlifts, you know, many times before, and had seen this sign many times before. 
And there's a for, for people who ski, they'll recognize that for people who don't, there's a, a sign at the bottom of the lift that says lower restraining device, which is the bar that keeps you safe on the chair. And the top, it's raised restraining device, so you can actually like get off the chair. And so I looked at the sign and I paused and went like, wait a second, and looked back at it and thought like, what is restraining me? Like, what is it the fact that I, you know, maybe don't have avalanche knowledge or, you know, need to brush up on some skiing skills or like, what, what is the financial barrier? Like, what about my career? What, you know, am I okay giving certain things up? So it was almost instantaneous that that, when I saw that sign and that, that would have been about a year and a half before I actually took off on the trip. Um, but it, it, it really struck me and it was that afternoon that I went home and I started, I just started Googling like round the world flights and different ski resorts and, you know, kind of got at it almost right away. Well, Steph Jagger walked away from the success and security she had worked long and hard to obtain. She quit her job, took a second mortgage on her house, sold everything except her ski equipment, duh, and her laptop and bought a couple of plane tickets uh, for the a couple of plane, a bundle of plane tickets for the next year, she followed winter across North and South America, Asia, Europe, and New Zealand, and up and down the mountains of nine countries on a mission to ski more than four million feet in a year. What? Why again? What? Why? Why? <laughs> this is the question that I get asked. That this is the one I always get asked is why. Yeah. And I think this is a really, I was really struggling this, with this for a long time. Like, right, like why, you know, like I had it pretty good. And, um, but I, I, I've always, you know, when I, when I was living in Vancouver, you know, life was, was good. Like all of the kind of boxes were ticked, but I, 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 I had a niggling feeling that there was just something more, something different kind of out there for me. You know, Joseph Campbell has a really good quote. It, it, it goes something like, if you can see your path laid out in front of you step by step, you know it's not your path. And and reflecting back, like, that's exactly how I felt. Like, I, I felt like I could project the next kind of 10, 20, 30 years of my life in Vancouver, and it would be like, okay, well, that's good, but I think there's something different for me. And it was a real um, attempt to, as I said, like, search for that treasure without really even knowing what it was. Um, and I figured that if I immersed myself in my own joy for, for a year, be, that being skiing and traveling and writing, that, that something would pop and shift, and, and it certainly did. Um, and why, that's, that's, why didn't you go the other way? A lot of people, when they, when they want to change the direction of the course of their life, they will deprive themselves of something, and they will, they will you know, go to a 10-day silent Vipassana meditation thing, or they will fast something or like one year uh for the last week of lent a few years ago i gave up my eyesight and went blind for a week um, right so but you went the other way you went right into what you really wanted yeah i mean i think that's that's a great question actually i've never been asked that but but upon reflecting upon it like i just i think of immersing myself or or anybody immersing themselves in their joy you know that and and this is an interesting distinction too you know for me skiing is is, is freedom and it is a moving meditation for me. So in many ways, I have described the trip as like, yeah, I meditated for like six hours a day, 140 days of the year. You know, that that's what I was doing when I was skiing. Um, so I, I don't know why I didn't go that way. I guess I'm just a believer in like joy versus suffering, although there was some <laughs> suffering on the trip, but... Um, yeah, that's when you got frostbite. Now, but but did you? By the way, did you get hurt? Was there, I just want to know the bad stuff because it can't be all yeah. just as awesome as you make it sound. 
Yeah, I mean, there was bad stuff. There was, you know, there was breakdowns in parking lots in New Zealand. There was me, like, throwing my gear around like I had Tourette's syndrome. Like, it, there was there was some crazy experiences um, and real kind of dark night of the soul moments where I'm, like, on my own in the middle of, you know, nowhere in a country that I don't know. Hmm. Um, you know, there's going to be some some challenging times with that. Flat tires and torrential rain and, you know, just different different experiences. Um, I think ultimately the most challenging thing for me, you know, certainly the physicality of it was challenging, but more so the challenge of, you know, kind of pulling apart my own identity, you know, who I thought I was and what I thought I was going to accomplish by doing the trip, you know, yeah. was not in fact what I, what I went out to do. And that was a huge surprise to me and, and of, of, of pain, you know, that's not easy work to kind of pull apart your belief systems and, and ask yourself, am I going to be able to go home? Am I going to be able to, you know, still have good relationship with my family and friends if I change this belief system that I've, you know, surrounded myself in for three decades? You know, those are those are tough questions. Wait, tell, um, hold on. Tell me more about this this belief system stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up in a really amazing family in Vancouver, um, and and they, there was very, very modeled for me, very, very clear and defined gender roles. And from a young age, I just somehow knew that I wasn't going to fit into my family's version of, of the female gender role. And so I developed a masculine ideal and I developed um, a big ego around it. And I used a lot of fear based motivation to like accomplish. And that served me pretty well as a, as a young woman in my te- late teens and early 20s. And, and I think, um, you know, my, my belief system going into the trip was like me and my willpower and my ego and my sense of being able to control things in the world can like do anything they want and everybody else just move out of the way and, and watch me go. Here I come, you know, just ramming through walls. (laughs) And, and I think what shifted for me so much was, um, really discovering the, the, the differences and, and the um, variety that's available in both the feminine and masculine ideal and really kind of rescuing the feminine in me, bringing that back to life and, and shifting from that fear-based motivation to what I call now like a love-based motivation. Will this help me grow, expand, connect with people, transform versus, you know, I'm scared I'm not going to be seen or worthy or enough, etc. So th- it was a... It was a big shift for me. It also involved a big shift for me spiritually, the idea that I'm the one in charge versus, you know, the idea that I have now of more of a co-creation. You know, am I listening to what I'm called to do and do I have the courage to do it and do I have the courage to keep listening to, you know, whether you want to call it God or whispers of the universe or, you know, all of these different things. Mm. Um, so th- those those were pretty dramatic shifts for me. Um Okay, I, I I just need to point out a couple things. Uh, first thing I want to point out is your chapter titles. Uh, your chapter titles alone make me want to fly down and hang out with you and your husband. These are freaking <laughs> hilarious. Uh, thank you. So, yeah. so here's a few for you folks. The Meat Seats, Lentil Soup and Bobby Brown. That's one chapter. <laughs> here's my favorite, Wind on the Nipple. Yeah. And then there's chapter 10, a nutcracker, an Italian woman, and a gravel parking lot. You, mm. you intrigue me. Um, <laughs> let, let's, let's dive into this one because, you know, this, this, our show is 
got some spiritual stuff to it. And so I see here yeah. uh, chapter uh, 18, church pews. Mm. Um, I, one of the chapters in my yet to be determined if it's a book or not writing uh-huh. is is called uh, tear-stained pews. Because every mm-hmm. time I walked into a church at uh, the start of my Camino, I sobbed, and it was just disgusting, yeah. was just embarrassing and loud. They're so cavernous, these buildings, and <laughs> so when you're sucking back snot, it just echoes so badly in the... You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Anyway, enough about my uh, issues. What are yours, and why did you write church pews, and, and what happened? It, hook us yeah. into that one. That's one of my favorite chapters. It's actually the one that I've been reading as I've been um, as I've been kind of traveling around. So, the, so that was a situation in Chamonix where where I think I discovered two things. Um, first of all, um, I, I discovered that the mountains really were were and had always been a mirror to me, and, and that you know I think people who have spent time in in what I call like big nature. Um, nature that reminds you how small and insignificant yet also connected and important you are. Um, I think it really struck me when I was in Chamonix because the, the mountains there, like you want, I don't know if you've been to Chamonix before in that part of the, of the French Alps, but it's like walking into the Vatican, like, you know, exchange the, the Zucchettos and the, you know, rosaries for harnesses and, and Gore-Tex and beacons and boots, like everything has a, you know, you, you just look like you're, it looks like you're walking into the Basilica. It's just, it's just stunning. Um, and it has a real, you know, holy, um, feeling to it when you are in Chamonix. And, And I think that's because there's a lot of mountaineers that have, have gone and risked and, and really practiced faith, you know, firsthand hmm. in that exact spot. So, so that to me, just being there, um, felt sacred to me. Um, the other thing that, that happened for me in Chamonix, you know, my grandfather on uh, my maternal grandfather passed in 1997, but there's been occasions since he's passed that I've felt him around or sensed him or felt his presence. And it's, it's, I've always enjoyed that. And, and he showed up for me in a really big way in Chamonix. And I, I literally felt like, felt like I got to spend, you know, five or six days sitting on chairlifts with him, just him and I. And, and that's what I, the, the, the metaphorical reference is that the, those chairlifts became my church pews, that I went back to those every day for, you know, six days straight in, in brutally cold weather, just to sit on the chairlift with him and have a conversation with him and ultimately what it came down to is have a conversation with God, you know, about, you know, I, I, I say, I say this in the book that, you know, people say you got to make a deal with the devil, but in my experience, you've got to do the same with God. Hmm. The, the only difference is that one conversation is about what you're going to get. And the other is about what you're going to give. And, <laughs> and, and that was a real, you know, in Chamonix with, with my grandfather and his presence and energy there. Um, that was a real kind of spiritual breakthrough for me. Um, and one that continues, continues on to this day as I, as I learn more about, creativity and and calling and co-creation and muse and and all of these different things which has been uh, really exciting for me do females struggle with ego the same way guys do what do you think well i think so i mean i think um for me i mean i can't speak for like every every woman on the planet but for me um 
you know, when my ego is at play, it's it's really linked into my fears. Hmm. And I think I think that's something that for sure, um, you know, everybody has at play. Um, so I think so. You know, whether it comes out in exactly the same way, I I don't know. That's a great question. I, we need to like dial up a social scientist or a or a psych major or something and and, and ask that one. But. I think everybody, you know, ego is so interlinked with fear, and I think everybody battles with different fears, and and whether they're gonna, you know, let the fear dominate and, and kind of take over or or not. So I, I would say yes. Well, just uh, as we sort of come to the end of our time together, there's something about me walking the Camino that uh, felt selfish, and the, and just bear with me for a second and help me help me get what I'm trying to get. Mm-hmm. Not everybody gets to go off and do this stuff. There's so many people in the world who are just trying to find food or get a job or find right. love. Right. Um, and here you and I go off and do these yeehaw, fun, interesting, fascinating, time away from real life kind of stuff. And there's yeah. there's a little bit of selfishness, I think, in that. Um, I think the word narcissist is used far too often, especially when you actually understand the definition of narcissism. Um, but boy, what do you think? Well, I, I think that um, I'm not sure whether it's selfish as much as it is privilege. Okay. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that you know certainly I know that I've had I you know I grew up privileged. You know I'm a I'm a white woman in the world. There's privilege that is inherent in that. Um, and and so I think that's it. That's at play for sure. And I'm fully conscious that that there's not going to be. You know, not not everybody can say this exactly what you just said. You know, I can't. Sorry, Steph, I can't just like pick up and ski around the world. I don't have. You know, that that's not being part of my life. And so my response to that is 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 a couple of things. First of all, for the people that do have privilege, you know, to think of these as selfish journeys, I think is the wrong way to think about it because ultimately, I think we have to ask ourselves: How will we use our privilege? Will we use it to go out and 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 grow and transform and expand and connect with other people and then do what you're doing like or what we're doing today and have conversations about it and bring back messages of what we learned and and, and write books and hopefully inspire people etc. Like that's I think a positive use of privilege and helping open doors for other people. Um, so. I also think even if you don't bring anything back, if you have an opportunity to go out into the world and become a more expanded, evolved version of yourself, I, I think that's our responsibility, not not selfishness. Um, so, so that would be one response. Hmm. The other response to um, you know people who say, "Well, I you know I can't necessarily do that," you know, you, you had kind of this this privilege, or I think we also need to define. These heroes' journeys, these these adventures, you know, they're very individual. And for me, it's really anything that's going to get you outside of your comfort zone. So for me, that was this, you know, I'd traveled before, I'd skied before, I'd done, you know, so to get outside of my comfort zone, like, I had to go big. You know, that isn't the case for, for many, many people. Um, so I would always encourage people to... Um, to define adventure as anything that's going to get themselves outside of their comfort zone. And in that place is when you're going to experience growth and transformation is when you're going to be able to tap into a different kind of spirituality, different belief systems, et cetera. And that could be like, okay, I'm going to reach out. This is outside of my comfort zone, but I'm going to join, you know, a running club for a couple months or, 
you know, I'm going to sign up for painting classes, you know, at my local community center that's, you know, maybe at really affordable price. So I think that's a really important part of it as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You're a really good communicator. No wonder you are a, um, what are you again, a life coach or something? You, don't you help people uh, get their life together? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I like to write. I think that's helped. But um, I also have a, uh, an executive and life coaching uh, company that I've been running for about five or six years on the side. Good so. for you. Good for you. Yeah. Steph Jagger, author of Unbound, Finding Myself on Top of the World. We're giving away a copy of today's HarperCollins Canada book to one of our Facebook followers, but uh, you got to be a Facebook follower, duh, of us. And uh, you have to include your address because people say, oh, I want the book, and then you don't put your address. That's silly. So send us a private message on the Drew Marshall Show Facebook page, and you could win a copy of today's book from HarperCollins Canada. What a pleasure. You have been a lot of fun to chat with, Steph. Thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. Deep gratitude to you guys for what you're doing. Deep gratitude to you, too. Good to chat. Bye, Steph. Have a good one. Bye. (laughs) Really? It's from the album Blizzard of Oz. You just, anytime Tim is right, he just belabors the points. All right, a short break on our show. We'll be right back.